Hello, I'm Kenny McMillan, host of the Frame and Reference podcast here on the Pro Video Coalition Network. If you love learning about filmmaking, you're definitely going to want to check out Frame and Reference, the cinematography podcast where I talk to DPs from across the spectrum, from ASC members and Oscar winners to indie shooters and documentarians. I've had over 50 amazing educational and entertaining conversations with these talented DPs, and I think you're really going to love it. So be sure to subscribe to Frame and Reference wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. That's Frame and Reference here on the Pro Video Coalition Network. That's all from me, and as always... Thanks for listening. Good morning, Vietnam! Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! You talking to me? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Hi-de-ho, you girls, boys, and non-binaries out there. This is your boy Ron Dawson coming at you with another edition of your favorite filmmaking podcast that breaks all the rules, Crossing the 180. It's part of the Art of the Frame podcast network by Film Tools and Pro Video Coalition. Every other week, I have engaging and informative conversations about culture and craft with artists, entrepreneurs, and filmmakers doing amazing work in the world of film and television. And today, I have quite a treat for you. It's an old friend and colleague of mine by the name of Kristen Souders. I have known Kristen, I'm afraid to say it, almost 20 years. It doesn't seem that long, but it's been almost 20 years, maybe 15-ish. And I first met her when I was a wedding videographer, a wedding filmmaker. A lot of people who start in this business start doing weddings and events, and I was one of those. And I was in the San Francisco Bay Area. Kind of had my eyes set on the higher end weddings at the time. And Kristen was like a superstar. She had shot celebrity weddings. She was one of the few people in the area who would actually shoot weddings on film, super eight millimeter film that commanded higher rates. And uh, I remember the first time meeting her, it was almost like meeting a celebrity. I always tease her about this. And I think she blushes whenever I tell her this, but she was just one of those people who was extremely successful in the industry. She had a company called Bliss Video Productions, and uh, she was just making waves and doing things that no one at the time was really doing. And so uh, I think I tell the story in my interview with her, but she really helped transform my business at the time. She had given me advice on some of the things and strategies she had done in order to get the higher end weddings and sort of had um, essentially inspired me to aim for uh, higher goals and objectives in my business in terms of the kind of jobs that I went after. And uh, she was largely responsible for me sort of like changing the direction of how I ran my video business. And just over the years, having been able to uh, speak alongside her at different events, seminars, and expos, uh, related to filmmaking and video production, hearing her speak. Uh, I've interviewed her a number of times for various podcasts I've done over the years. And every time I interview her, I'm just inspired. And I think she's just extremely, I don't know, she just like, she just knows her shit. And she's not afraid to say what she feels and thinks. And she is one of these people who's who's had such a wide and diverse career in this business. Uh, as of this recording and this interview, she is the Senior Creative Director of Global Brand for Hitachi Vantara. And uh, before that, I think she was at, um, is it pronounced Ukla? I never know how to pronounce that. But I think if you're in the industry, you've probably heard of it. Uyala. I'm, I'm looking on her LinkedIn page to see how to pronounce it. <laughs> Uyala. I said Ukla. I was totally off. But uh, she was the video director and production manager there. Anyway, she uh, just had this wide and diverse uh, career, you know, spanning, going everything from high-end wedding and event films to being the global creative brand director for a brand like Hitachi Ventar. So uh, I have no doubt that you're going to be inspired by this interview and get some ideas for your own crafting career. And I uh, hope you enjoy my conversation with 
Kristen Souders. See you on the other side. Just one heads up before we start this uh, episode. I think somehow I had chosen the wrong audio input when recording on Zoom for this. So basically, my side of the audio sounds like crap. Sounds like basically it was recording from the computer mic, which it probably was. So apologies for that. I mean, you can still hear it and all, but it's just very unprofessional for a podcaster. But uh, hey, you know, we all make mistakes. Thankfully, the information is so badass, you probably won't even notice because you'll be too busy taking notes or just being engaged in the conversation. Anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. But here is uh, my conversation with Kristen Souders. Uh, I have no doubt you'll enjoy it. See you on the other side. I'm thinking the last time we actually talked was was for another podcast interview, but that was like back when I was living in um, Windsor, California. Oh. Which would have been like 2006, 2007. That's really, that's a long time ago. That is a long time ago. A really long time ago. (laughs) I know. It's crazy. It's so wild. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you was because your career kind of reminds me of mine, in a sense. (laughs) And, And since we're... Like you and I first met way back when we were both shooting weddings and I've told the story before years ago, but like I always credit you with like a total turn in my career as, as a filmmaker and video producer. I don't know. I know I've told you this story before, but it's been a while. Uh, Do you remember the story? I remember a little bit of it because what was that? That was like 2007 or something. Yes, exactly. Six. It was exactly 2006, 2007. Yeah. And at the time you were shooting, like you were shooting on film and you're shooting all these high profile <laughs> celebrity style weddings. And so like in the San Francisco Bay area, a lot of people aspired to be like Bliss Productions, which was the name <laughs> of the company at the time. And I remember meeting you and I remember the first time meeting you, it was like meeting a celebrity. Is oh, there's oh, Kristen. God, <laughs> I know you don't like this stuff. <laughs> I already do it because I want to make fun of you. <laughs> But the story is, I remember because you're one of the few people getting like these commanding these really high fees and whatnot. And I remember this was going to be the first time that I was going to be going to WPPI, which is the Wedding and Portrait Photographers International um, Expo, which was like one of the biggest photography expos at the time. I remember I was going to be going to this. And I remember you telling me that a lot of your uh, business came from photographer referrals because at the time, like photographers were the shit, right? They were the ones who brides were paying the most money to. And um, you had told me that you had built this network of photographers that you knew. And you had told me, Ron, if you're going to go there, like, I think you're the one who even suggested that I do go there. Because at the time I was going to Weva. Yeah. Which I was is like, the, there's not going to be any money coming in. But, right. Those types of things. Yeah. Which was the Wedding and Event Video Association, which I think, I think they still have an online presence, but years ago, they used to have a yearly expo as well. And, and I remember you said, you know, Ron, if you're going to go to places, you should go to WPPI. So I went to WPPI and I connected with a bunch of photographers. And I remember when I went, like, because you said, like, get to know as many photographers as you want. And I remember I thought to myself, I want every photographer there to see my work. So I, I reached out to Rangefinder Magazine, who at the time was the one who was sponsoring it. And I said, let me make like a recap video for you because um, no one had ever done it before and basically said yes I got to know Skip Cohen who was the owner there and I did like basically it was like a same week edit but while I was there I remember Skip saying well Ron since you're there anyway we're doing this thing with Adobe and they have this new product out coming Adobe Lightroom it was the first year the Adobe Lightroom was out let's just hire you to sh- interview all these photographers talking about Lightroom so it was like an $8,000 gig, which back then was huge um, yeah. in the mid-2000s. And I only got it because I was already there shooting this other free thing. And I was only there shooting the free thing because you had said, Ron, go to WPPI. And the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember, I was supposed to be interviewing you, but I feel like I'm doing all the talking. But, no, I love it. I love it. But, We're going down memory lane. It's good. But, but I remember uh, up to that point, I had only gone to Weave a convention. <laughs> Oh no. Oh no. I had only gotten weird, like, and no shade to any event videographers who are listening to this. 
Um, they've actually come a long way since the they've come early, a long way since the early yeah. 90s. Long way. But so going to Weaver conventions, like most of the attire you saw, this sounds this sounds very stereotypical, but <laughs> this is the truth. We're like Get Hawaiian, it out. Get it out. <laughs> we're like Hawaiian shirts and shorts. Oh yeah. Oh no. There was a like, there was a type. There was a persona. There was for a type. Right. Weaver. Right, yeah. right. Um, and then I remember my wife at the time and I going to WPBI for the first time. And I remember thinking, like, we're not in Kansas anymore. Like, they were all wearing outfits from Buckle and from Abercrombie and Fitch. Sometimes it's, it felt like you smelled like you're in an Abercrombie and Fitch store. <laughs> um, and, and it was the first time I had seen, like, sponsorships. Like, photographers were sponsored, like, athletes. Like, so like Nike was sponsoring Mike Cologne or um, yeah. whoever he was in the canon was sponsoring this other person, right? You know, Jerry Guionis, all these other kind of people. I think Jerry's a Nike shooter now. And it was like 10 times bigger. Like we were probably at 1,500, 2,000. There was 10,000 people. I guess that's only five times. But at the time, there was like 10,000 photographers at this event in Las Vegas. And so like maybe a good place to start so that I reduce all the talking is um, one of the things that reminds you of me is that, like, I I feel like I've had, like, three different careers since that time. Like, I switched from shooting weddings to shooting corporate work, and then from shooting corporate work. And now, like, now my main type of living, I still do a few videos, but my main thing of living now is content marketing. So I do a lot of blog writing and podcasting for my clients. And I've loved it. I love the diversity that I've had in the work that I've done. And, like, kind of, like, following you over the years, I kind of feel like, you've had this similar thing, you know, and at the time I eventually got to be a relatively high-end wedding filmmaker in the Bay Area. And so I kind of feel like you've had a similar course of action where you kind of start out doing these high-end weddings, and then you transition to doing these other positions in the corporate world. And now you're, yeah. you're, you're where you are now. And so talk to me a little bit about like this journey you've had and kind of like why you've, gone the way you've gone to these different roles you've had and what it was like for you because you know like that seemed like such an aspect of your life back then as it is for a lot of small business people when you're doing that kind of work um to like where you are doing now like it seems like there's this big divide tell me a little bit about that yeah no it's true i mean it, it's one of those things where i really when i look back i have a non-traditional path but in in honesty, like all honesty, like so many people have that, especially in the creative world. Uh, I think that for me, starting out, you know, I, I I hit a ceiling with the wedding filmmaking industry, and just also I got pregnant with my first kid, and so my priorities changed, and I no longer wanted that stress of being a small business owner. While I loved the independence of it, and kind of the uh, the excitement and the drama of the sale and of getting to know people and having this wonderful industry. I was also just really burnt out on the financial aspect of it, on having to like spend so much of your time, not in creative, like creative was 10% of the work. Um, and that at the end of the day, it really wasn't about the work as much anymore. It was about, um, just being able to, especially in California, being able to, to survive for a small business. And, you know, when the market crashed in 07, that's when everything, like all of my top tier clients, like sat on their money and they didn't pay their small business, you know, vendors for stuff like that. So that's kind of what created a, a, a pretty forceful shift in my thinking. Um, and so I just went like, Hey, look, you know, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I can, I can jump into any environment um, whether they're, you know, your next door neighbor or whether they're a CEO and I can roll with those groups and, and with a camera, um, that's been my, my path. So I'm going to go look at tech and tech startups because the work that I was seeing coming out of like the storytelling for these companies was terrible. And, um, they were all like these really bad explainer videos. You know, that was really like kind of 2009. I just started, uh, pounding the pavement a little bit. I, I set a goal. And I remember walking down Castro Street in Mountain View going, I was walking with my husband and I said, you know, I'm going to find one of these tech companies and I'm going to work for them. And I'm going to create some films for them because I think that they need it. And sure enough, like I answered an ad 
And I think it was even on Craigslist of all places. And it was for this amazing uh, startup company. And so I started just freelancing for them and kind of getting into the world of tech startup and understanding the language and all the acronyms um, and all the sales terminology that's used. And so that kind of led to being able to say, oh my gosh, I can have a steady paycheck. I like this. I don't have to be responsible. And no, you know, I have so much respect for um, people that work in events. I love it. I still work in events um, in my corporate life, but it is, it's a really, um, it's a stressful job depending on your clients, you know, just like any world. But at some point I kind of hit, I hit a wall where there just was so much um, emotion tied to the work that I was doing in weddings that I couldn't disassociate from. And that was taking an emotional health toll on me. Um, you know, I wasn't, I, I, one of the things that I struggled with in the past was perfectionism over progress. And I've learned that over the years, over the last decade on how to shift that. But, you know, in my perfectionist mode as a young person that didn't understand the power of communication, that you need to communicate to your client, that it doesn't matter if you give them some Scorsese level piece, that if you haven't communicated through the process, you're not going to get the satisfaction because they aren't getting the satisfaction of the product, right? So there was a lot there. And, and at some point, I just had so many different clients that were wanting things captured because they had dying grandmothers or family members. And, you know, I remember within the last year, I had like two or three different clients that said, my grandmother's dying wish is to see their wedding film before they pass. And I was so buried at the time because I was a perfectionist with delivering and um, I missed those windows. And that, while that's for them to put on me, it, it sits with you, right? Yeah, and so to yeah, hear yeah. that and to say like, oh, I couldn't fulfill this person who I don't know's dying wish as an artist, it kills yeah. you. And so I just was like, I'm done, I'm done. I have given everything that I can give to this industry. Um, and I want my life back. Because what I also was finding, I, what's the movie with uh, Robin Williams? I think it's called The Final Cut, where mm -hmm. he's an editor. And I resonated so strongly with that because I realized I'd been living for a decade and I love it. And I love my stories. It's something that, you know, I'll take to the grave with me. But I realized that I was living so much of my life through other people's lives and stories. And I needed to make my own. And now that I was having my first child, I needed to stop and put the camera down and I needed to go live with my family that I was building. And so that was, that was, you know, I was kind of closing that chapter, the identity of Kristen bliss of all of that stuff was hard. And it has been hard to shift because there are people that literally only know me as that. Right. And so it's like, how do you rebrand yourself? And that's always been, you know, a challenge. It's hard. You can do it for other people, but when you try to do it for yourself, it's like the hardest thing in the world. You just have to go hire your, your friends and have them like say, okay, I'm going to re reimagine you, you know, and, and that's, that's how that works. But when it comes to coming to into tech world, you know, that felt like so much easier. It was so much easier because the emotion was taken out of it. And so it was really about learning about the business. It was learning about um, the technology. And in my case, what um, the company that I was working for was a company called Uyala, and they were a pioneer of video analytics and video monetization. Um, before, you know, this was in 09. And so it was really, it was before Netflix. It was before all of this, you know, where we understood video advertising, they were at the forefront of that. And so um, what that gave me, um, I was there for about four years and um, we had a variety of clients from Vice to ESPN. And that's where they basically, you know, once you create your video, you put it in a backend system like a Brightcove, a Wistia. We were one of those competitors and we were kind of the upstart. Um, I believe Brightcove has since um, acquired Uyala, but it allowed me to understand the backend of once you create your film, where does it go? What does it do? How can you work with it? How can you make sure that it comes, you know, when it's coming online? And so that is a skill set that I have to say, um, now having done this for a really long time, I don't see a lot of that skill set. It's normally in like stuck in IT somewhere. And so I really try to encourage filmmakers um, to really start to understand the back end 
of uh, you know, CDNs, content delivery networks. Sorry if I over acronym. I've been working in tech too long. Um, it's part of the business. So it's part of the business. <laughs> oh God. Um, so so it's been really great to be able to see that because it also it, it allowed me to understand video analytics in a really deep way and understand engagement and really be able to understand how can you you know. Yeah, you're acquiring all this data from the content that you're producing, but what does that data actually mean? How do you ask proper questions of the data as you go find it? So, so it's been really cool to be able to see what performs well and what doesn't, and depending on the audiences you're targeting. And so working for that company allowed me to start to understand that. Then I got to apply it to other types of tech companies as I started moving through and working with other companies, both as a consultant, as well as in-house, um, and really got my feet wet in in-house creative. Um, and so that's where I really kind of jumped off uh, because I was able to take this world of having a small business where I was hiring designers all the time to help create websites and create branding and pieces like this, which is stuff that I love. And, you know, having a film background and then being able to say, okay, I can do this in the corporate world. Um, and in my world, I've worked specifically in B2B. And so it's one of those things where making that transition to creative director uh, was pretty, felt pretty organic, honestly. Because once I left Uyala, um, I moved into a creative director role for, uh, you know, also a, kind of a, a startup company that was about to go public um, in the IT sector. They were a really fun company and had a fun brand. And that's something that I always look for. It's all about the people. So, so that was really cool to all of a sudden go, hey, I'm going to go jump off and go try this. And, you know, I, I will say, you know, I, I definitely overthink things, but I am, I am pretty fearless when it comes into just, I'm just going to walk through the door and I'm going to figure it out. And my, my motto as a creative leader is to hire people for my skill gaps. And, you know, I don't ever want to be the smartest person in the room. I know a lot of people say that, but I really don't. Um, as a creative leader, I'm not there to be the most creative. I'm there to gather the creativity and say, how do we achieve something together? And like, be able to understand the vision of the executive to be able to then paint the way, whether that canvas is film, whether that canvas is an experiential event, whether that's banner ads, whatever that is. So that's kind of how that really fast shift started happening. And it just, you know, it just felt, it just felt authentic um, to the path that I was on. And I was having a really good time. I met a lot of really great people, worked with a lot of really great agencies. So it's, it's similar to that wedding world of that subculture of like, you find your people and you kind of just keep moving and you invite new people in and you say goodbye to others that want to go on a different path. And, and that's just sort of how that, how that world has worked. You mentioned earlier about brand and personal brand. And I think one of the lessons that I learned back in that time when you and I were talking, and this wasn't explicitly said at the time we were talking, but it's something that I think I absorbed or definitely um, something I observed when I went to that photography convention so many years ago is personal branding. Like, what does it mean for an artist to have a personal brand? And I think people generally have an idea of what a brand is. You know, mm -hmm. I, I've written a lot about this topic and I've read a lot about it. And I think a lot of people, you know, we ask them what's a brand, they'll say, oh, it's a logo, it's a, it's a, it's a this or a that. And there's, you know, there's so much more to branding than that. It's everything from, from the first contact a company has with you, regardless of who you are, to the, to last. And it's one thing that I'm always talking to my clients about. It's like every interaction a client has with you is speaking to your brand from your website to how you talk to them on the phone to presentations you make. And so talk to me about like, but it, how important do you think it is for artists, whether or not they are self-employed or maybe even especially so if they work for someone else, like if you work for someone else, you may feel like, what do I need a personal brand for? Like, I already have a job or whatnot. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this idea of an artist having a personal brand. And does the necessity for it change when you go into the corporate world? That's a great question. I mean, I think it, it, it all depends on 
you know, what your goals are, right? So I would say speaking for myself, it's really hard for me to maintain a personal brand in the work that I do because I do have a lot of responsibility in my corporate life. And I would love to be able to have that time to carve out. And that's something I've been working on. Um, I think that as a young professional, it's important to build your personal brand. And really what it is to me, in my opinion, is that you've got to find your point of view as a creative. And that's one of the things when I'm hiring, I'm looking at like designers and saying like, well, can I see their point of view? Yeah, they can do a bunch of different styles. Do I see what their point of view is as a creative? And so that's, that's, I think the first thing, like, otherwise you're just hiring like production artists and those are a dime a dozen. And that's why a hundred and 99 designs or whatever that website is exists. Um, but, designs, yeah. Yeah. Um, but for personal branding, I think it's one of those things where it's a balance, right? Because in some ways your personal brand gets you in the door of these big companies. Like for instance, and I'm going to totally out myself now. Um, so I don't know if I'm even allowed to say some of these things, but like I couldn't just walk into an Apple and get that, you know, get the job. It doesn't matter of all the great stuff that I've done and, you know, the, the, the fires I've, I've put out and the problems I've solved and things like that from a creative experiential and the revenue and all of that, your personal brand and your accolades and all of that, that's what gets you those types of things. Um, so it is important, but at this end of the day too, like you gotta, you gotta have the work, like you gotta be able to deliver. And you have to also be great to work with. And I think that's the other part of it. Talent is one thing, but being able to be a great person to teamwork with is so much more important because, I mean, unless you're like, you know, a C-suite executive, you're not hired to have all of the answers. You're hired to figure out the problem and to figure out solutions and so how you go about that in your process and how you communicate um, is so critical. And being able to be a team player and not somebody that's going to say like, well, I did this, this was mine or undermining or things like that. So I think that your personality and your approach to collaboration is critical. And I know I'm bouncing all over the place. So let me know if I need to like center. No, no, I think that makes a lot of sense, um, especially that part about being the kind of person that people want to work with. Um, I mean, because unless, unless you're Steve Jobs, very few people are, no one wants to work with an asshole. And even, and even a lot of people don't even want to work with Steve Jobs. Right. Was, but there's, but there's tons of them. There's tons of them. And for some tons, reason, tons of assholes or tons of Steve Jobs. There's tons of assholes. Okay, and so, um, and, and for some reason, especially in corporate, uh, they get promoted. And uh, they, oh, they, yes, I know that they, they make their way. That's why I always joke that like, I wish that there was like a shadow site for LinkedIn called Slinked in and that oh, you, you could start. just be able to uh, write reviews about people, which is slanderous. Right. Can't right. do it. But, you know, we all know, we all know. We all know. Um, so, and that's why, that's why you find the people that you love working with. And then that way you can go do great work together. And you just kind of have to move and shape and shift and realize that there's going to be high points and there's going to be really low points. Um, and you know, times to say goodbye and times to say, Oh my God, this is like a new amazing opportunity. I'm going to take a risk. So tell me about the work you're doing now and how has the experience you've had in the past gone all the way back to your bliss video days inform what you do now, if it does, like maybe it doesn't. But to the extent that it does, how has it informed the kind of work that you do now? You know, the work that I do now, so I'm the director of creative brand and global events for Hitachi Ventara. Hitachi Ventara is the digital arm of Hitachi Limited. And I know a lot of people, myself included, um, I started working there in August uh, during COVID, um, was like, wait, Hitachi, don't they make TVs? What what does this company do? So um it's one of those things where, you know, Hitachi actually has works in massive industries and verticals, um, you know, rail, energy, uh, finance, you know, just it, it's massive. And what attracted me to Hitachi in, in particular is, is that their mission statement is really powering good. Um, and that is really trendy right now, but it's, you know, 
an over 100-year mission statement of the company. And they really do live it and breathe it. And so I had the opportunity to come on board there and start to help uh, modernize their brand. And so we've been on that trajectory and it's been awesome working with a new group of people and bringing in old friends that I've worked with in the past to start to do things. And um, the way that my work in the past with Bliss or with working in uh, event filmmaking has come into play is just in things like events, uh, especially virtual events. We just had a, a large virtual event conference um, that my global events team led, and it was really challenging. We were shooting in like nine different countries uh, by sending kits or having on the ground crews. Um, we shot over 75, I guess you would say like webinar type series by uh, you know, setting them up for people and figuring out like how they can tell their story, how they can craft it, and really being able to use you know, a filmmaking background to say, how do we make this compelling content? Because this is pretty dry technical information. Um, and some of them were like really amazing stories about, you know, sustainability, because it was the, it's really about social innovation. So I'm able to take the work that I've done in the past uh, with working with um, executives from my filmmaking days and being able to apply that to the C-suite. Um, and just at the end of the day, you know, my approach is just to be really real and transparent and to say, hey, look, here's the opportunity. Here's the challenges. Which path do we want to go down and, you know, make recommendations from there? Um, but it's really cool. It's really great. I get to design interfaces. I work with a lot of UI UX designers, um, a lot of branding agencies um, just around all of the different work. And so I'm really able to kind of touch every aspect of creative. Um, as well as product design. So in my past company, you know, we did product design and worked with companies like IDEO. Um, and so we were able to do some of that work and like work on industrial design projects was just really amazing and definitely not my skill set, but it's really fun to be able to be in the room and to learn. And I think that that's the thing for me, being somebody that's trying to always evolve. I love being able to go into a new situation and just listen and just be able to absorb and understand and then take little kernels of that and apply that to the next step. And, you know, I think it's hard because sometimes I forget about how much information I know and how much I've experienced. Um, and I think especially, you know, part of this is just uh, as a Gen Xer, keeping that like just, you know, undermining myself with that and instead saying like, no, actually, I need to put that on paper. I need to do that. Um, and say that, like, actually, I do have a lot of expertise in this area. It's hard uh, for me, at least. So it's been it's been a cool journey. And, you know, I just to me, it's all about, like, do I love what I'm doing and do I love the people I'm working with? And when the answer is no, then it's time to bounce. So I've really been fortunate to be able to have a pretty stable career with this. I'm, I'm a Leo, so I'm a loyalist. I stay in places for a little bit longer um, because I believe I, if I believe in something, I'm going to fight tooth and nail for it. So um, right now it's very fresh and I'm very excited about the work that we're doing. I'm always uh, fascinated with people who work in the corporate world, but don't have like a stereotypical corporate look. And you often see this. I think it's not uncommon to see this in creatives. So people can't see this, but like, you know, you have like this cool, really short, blonde bob <laughs> hair thing going on you have like your both your arms are totally inked up and that's tattoos for those who aren't in that and so i'm curious has the way you present yourself and i almost think this is an issue and for better or for worse probably for worse that's been a bigger issue for women than i think it is for men you know, has, has it ever been a challenge for you in terms of like how you how you feel like you want to present yourself to the world in terms of either how people respond to you, how they take you, you feel like you've ever been, never been taken seriously. Uh, I'm curious as to yeah. as that, if that's ever been a challenge or not. I think that, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting question because if I look back, um, you know, I love fashion and I love anything um, design and creative. So for me, I've always just tried to be as authentic with it as possible. If it doesn't feel right on me, then I can't pull it off. 
so I won't go there. Right. And so I, I just, I have to feel like me. And when I'm going into these corporate settings, I may play some stuff up or I may play some stuff down. I think everybody does that. Right. Like when I'm going and presenting in front of Japanese executives, make sure I'm wearing long sleeves because I just don't know. And then maybe a couple meetings down the road, it'll be fine because it's hundred degrees outside, but, and my air conditioning is not turned on, but I have a short sleeve shirt on. Right, but right. I think the thing is, is that you've got to just be you and be your most authentic self. And I know that sounds super cliche, but that's how I roll through these worlds. And it's how I always have. I mean, I kind of laugh when I look back at when I did have my company with Bliss when I first started out. I had hot pink, short, spiky hair. I mean, I like, don't remember that, but I had hot pink, pink hair. Was part of your- and I, I've, I've always been a, a pink person, but, um, but I remember like I would just show up to these weddings, and some weddings I knew that I needed to wear like some sort of hat or something like that. But it's just more like I, I kind of look at that and go, whoa, that that was kind of wild that I did that because you don't want to make a spectacle. But I was also young and stupid and twenty five. Um, but you just, I don't know. I just feel like if it's ever been a, a problem for me, I didn't know about it. Um, but I also think that that's a really privileged thing for me to be able to say that I didn't notice it. Um, I, but I do just try at the end of the day to, to just be a transparent, kind person that regardless of whatever hangup they might have, or maybe they go, oh, we're going to hire her because she looks this way, which is also problematic. Um, I just try to be me. I think that the question, at least for me, has come up a lot lately. One of my clients, one of my clients is Wistia, actually. You mentioned them. And I'm a podcast producer. And the podcast that I produce is this podcast that's geared towards um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the issues that has come up with the number of the guests that we've interviewed for that podcast, and we've interviewed we've interviewed a number of Black women on that, is the uh, the challenges that Black women have had. Uh, and I've noticed this Black men have had this issue too. But for instance, is wearing your hair natural mm-hmm. as opposed to straightening it uh, in the corporate world? And so I know this issue is something in terms of being able to be your authentic self is something that some people do take for granted. Like you can be your authentic self and totally. think twice about it. Right. And then for some people being their authentic self might rub against the grain in terms of them being who they are. Like I saw, so I was on Square, you know, the, the financial yeah. company Square. Yeah. I was on their website the other day. And I was looking at their board of directors and Jay-Z is on their board of directors. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. And so it's it's funny because I think because of doing this podcast, I'm more, uh, not this one, the, the one for Wistia, I'm more um, aware of the the whole makeup of companies, not just their racial yeah. makeup, but the, no. the diversity and gender and, and, and race as well. And... And it, it becomes really obvious to me when a company has, uh, if I look through a company and everyone on the board of directors is a white guy. So I was watching, I was looking at Square's board of directors and it's like, you know, clean cut white guy, clean cut white guy. Jay-Z. <laughs> and it, Jay-Z and it's Jay-Z. Like, so some people may think of Jay-Z short. It's Jay-Z with like <laughs> yeah, spiked dreaded dread. With huge <laughs> dreads. And it was, I'm not going to lie, it was kind of, it was kind of off-putting in a comical way, in a sense, because I could see it being like a a joke on like a satirical sitcom or something. Like we go through this, you know, this board of directors of this corporate finance related company. Like if it was like a record company or something like that. It wouldn't throw me off as much, but it was square. And it really kind of threw me for a loop to see Jay-Z like that. But it also was kind of like, after the few moments of it being thrown off a bit, I was like, I think that's pretty cool that he felt like, well, he's also Jay-Z. Like, (laughs) he's he's probably one of the richest guys. um, Yeah, I think Blue Ivy is like one of the richest kids in the world. That's crazy. (laughs) 
Um, so I'm, I'm sure because of his financial and just influence, he can, he can show up anywhere he wants, yeah. looking anywhere he likes. Um, but I hazard to guess the average black man probably cannot pull that off. So it is an issue that comes up, which is why I asked, because I think it's something that it is easy for people to take for granted the fact yes. that however you feel like your authentic self is. And it can be as simple as just keeping your hair natural versus straightening right. it. Um, you know, some of the issues that came up with the, the women we interviewed was, and this is, this is out of the Black woman's mouth, so this, but she was talking about how a lot of Black women are curvier. And so some of the outfits that are designed for the corporate just kind of fit them tighter. And so it was a challenge finding outfits that wasn't too tight or wasn't, mm-hmm. didn't come across as over-sexualized or whatnot. And so, you know, I was wondering what have, if anything, have you seen in the creative world um, or maybe in your world where yeah. this issue of diversity comes up? And, you know, it, it's one of the themes that I bring up often on this particular show because particularly when it comes to art, I think it's important because I think there's so many aspects of art that are improved when you have diverse voices speaking into it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's the creative space and then there's the corporate space. Mm-hmm. Both spaces need a lot of work <laughs> when it comes to this. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, for me, I think that there's so many um when I look at a creative team and I'm, I'm working on this right now, I do not have this figured out, but I, you know, in the past, most of the creative teams I've worked on have been predominantly white men and women. Um, and so that is a very specific point of view on creative. And there's a website uh, that is, was created by um, Walter Gear, and uh, it's called Diverse Creatives. And it's wonderful because it's a great sourcing place. And there's quite a few different ones that have really sprung out, especially in the last year. Um, but being able to find other types of voices in creative is so important. And I was actually just listening to this really wonderful um, podcast, actually, around um, dismantling white supremacy through design. Um, it was uh, Stephen Gates from the Crazy One podcast. He does a Pass the Mic series and he had three different speakers. And um, just around, you know, equity and patriarchy and um, Christian nationalism, like all these things like play a role and not to get super into all this stuff, <laughs> but I know you and I can go there. Oh, we can go there. Um, but it, it's really important. It's important to have difference and difference of opinion and difference of, you know, culture and ethnicity and experience. And it's just, you know, for me, like at my, my current job, I have a team in India. Um, and that's been a great learning for me to understand, especially in COVID. God, it's been crazy. But just to understand the nuance of how to help uh, foster their creative growth in, you know, the types of constructs and, and systems that they are working in and what works out there might not work here in America. And just understanding those differences, it's it's a great learning. Um, and as the world gets smaller, we need to have more diverse teams across the board. The tech issue, you know, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk about hiring uh, BIPOC voices uh, to bring into companies. And some companies are doing it, but I don't see a lot. I see them hiring and tokenizing, in my opinion, uh, for like diversity inclusion roles, right? And that's not the answer. It's, so it's very frustrating, um, but I'm glad that there's the conversation that's happening. And for me, it's about a big unlearning. Like just even when you ask, like, you know, how has your appearance been able to like help you or hinder you? And that was something that about a year ago, as you know, I got laid off in, in March, about a week or two weeks before COVID hit. And that was a huge process. I was grateful for it because I was looking for new opportunities. And so things just sort of aligned, but it also made me look at like my portfolio and myself and how I present myself and what these companies want. And I realized in that process that like, I just was very privileged to be able to think that I could just come in with a smile and a hello uh, with my style 
and just, you know, be able to walk in. And I, I was looking at, you know, a couple different colleagues of mine and knowing two of which are black women knowing like they can't do that same thing and that's fucked up. And so like, that's the stuff that I just really started looking at myself and going, how can I offer like my shoulders for other people to be able to like launch off of, because I've, you know, been able to evolve and adapt and I want to be able to help other people. So it's been, you know, it's been a process and it's ongoing, but it's, it's really interesting just to kind of see all of the different, all of the different perspectives that are coming through and, you know, where we go from here. I'm not exactly sure. I think we just need to be able to, to, to be able to be honest. And when we see executive boards that are all predominantly white men and women, that's a problem because there's a huge loss of uh, creative ideation and, and innovation, frankly. One of the refrains I hear from people is that, uh, I'll just say it. So where some white men feel like, like they are now the ones who are, for lack of a better word, the victim. Like if you're, if you're, if you're a, a cisgender heterosexual white man, like you're the quote unquote bad guy. What is your thought and thinking on that? And this may sound cynical, but it's not cynical at all. Like, right. are are we being unfair to the cishet white man? And I am trying to think of the right way to respond to this. Um, it's a hard question. It's a really hard question because I think that if, to me, it appears a bit narcissistic mm-hmm. to be able to say that you're the victim. Because in doing that, you're only looking inward instead of saying, why are people saying these things? Mm. Why is this? Can I look outside of myself? Can I try and exhibit some empathy to understand why these things would be the way that they were? And I frankly, like, don't understand that disconnect. That that's the part that is very frustrating for me. Yeah to be able to figure out like, well, how do you speak to somebody like that? Like if they don't have empathy, right? what is that conversation? You know, so I don't think it's, um, I, I don't think there's a victimization. Mm-hmm. I think that there is just an awakening of, hey, it's always been this one note that's been played. Mm-hmm. And there's an entire realm of, of piano keys that have beautiful voices. Right. right. Terrible, terrible analogies. Uh, an analogy I've used in the past. Have you ever seen the movie Dragon Slayer? Um, I don't think so. It's uh, actually, uh, it's a pretty cool 80s, I think it's late 80s. It's about a dragon. That and a is, slayer. And a slayer who, who's, who's terrorizing this village, whatever. And a wizard has to go and defeat it. Uh, but one aspect of the story is that the village or the kingdom or whatever, they have to make a sacrifice. And it's always like a virgin, right? So they have to make a virgin sacrifice. And there's this lottery that's held where all the women in the kingdom have to put their name in and it's drawn. I don't know if it's once a season or once a full moon, whatever it is. At one point, spoiler alert for a 20 plus, 30 plus year old movie, but at one point they think they've defeated the dragon but they've just really pissed them off. So they had stopped all of the sacrifices and they're starting them up again. And it comes out that the princess, the daughter of the king, her name has been kept out of the lottery and she feels bad about it. And so she takes upon herself to replace all of the women's name with her name. And she gives a speech about how for so many years her name was kept out and she didn't know. And now this is making up for the fact that she was hipped out. And the way it kind of, it's kind of cool how it plays off because the guy pulls it and he sees the name. He doesn't, and he doesn't read it. And the king is like, read the name. And the guy reads the name and it's the king's daughter. And the king, that must be a mistake. And the king goes in and he starts pulling in every name is the woman's name, his daughter's name. But it kind of reminded me of that. It's like for so many years, she has had this past, so to speak. And to kind of make up for that, she has kind of replaced her name with 
Damn it, I'm not saying that people should, you know, white cisgender heterosexual men should make those kind of sacrifices. They never would do that. Right, right. (laughs) But here's where I try to like always have empathy myself because I can understand if if I'm a quote unquote nice guy where I care about racial issues, I care about other people, and I'm a cisgender heterosexual white man, I might sometimes feel like, well, it's not fair. Like I'm a good guy. Why am I now so like being grouped with all these other people or whatnot? For me personally, I think I've dealt with it as a as a just a man, as a as a cisgender man. Even though I'm black, I still have privileges as a man. And I've been listening to this other podcast series called "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill," and so Mars Hill was this really toxic church in the Seattle area by this pastor named Mark Driscoll, and mm-hmm. It, it's um, he just kind of like wreaked havoc, but he was like your classic, uh, oh, yeah. toxic, super sovereignistic yeah. masculine um, who preached sort of like this very um, complementarian sort of Christianity, which is women are are equal, but they're they comp they're equal, but they're complementary. So there's certain roles that God made for men and certain roles that God made for women. One of them made for women is being a housemaker. Like literally, he says stuff like this from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but there's this one episode that I was listening to today, and each episode they're talking about just just and his church came crashing down in 2014, plagiarism, some plagiarism stuff. He did some stuff to pay off the New York Times to get like to pay to get his book on the New York Times bestselling list, plus just all of the damage he did. People who came out of that church were dealing with trauma. But one of the things in this particular episode, they had this um, excerpt from a sermon he did where basically he was saying, and, you know, I don't think any people have any kids to sing, but basically he was saying that women need to give their men uh, blowjobs because that's what Jesus wanted. That's essentially what he was saying. Like, you need, he was telling the story about this woman whose husband was... <laughs> <laughs> upset upset and and an atheist and not coming to church and she was coming to church and then mark was basically telling basically said he's not coming to church because you're not fulfilling him sexually and then after she did that he started coming to church but he he's actually telling the story in his sermon to his congregation this particular day and everyone's like laughing at it and i remember listening to this episode one being appalled but two thinking to myself, I can't even imagine what it must be like to be a woman in an environment like that. And a lot of the eye-opening I've had about women issues have come from friends, women friends of mine who've said, Ron, stuff I've said was like either insensitive. Well, I consider myself like an ally and a nice guy. And I've had, you know, women friends who are close enough to me say, you know, that was BS that you just said, or this is why this is insensitive, or you know, I remember a number of years ago doing my radio film school podcast. One of the first things for me was I had this really cool trailer that it made and all these voices of all these cool filmmakers. And I remember this woman emailing me, your podcast sounds really cool, but how come you don't have any women? It didn't even occur to me that I didn't have any women filmmakers in this podcast. And it was like a sort of like a This American Lifestyle podcast. And I think that was one of the first eye-opening things for me. It was like, I wasn't even aware of it. Like I wasn't consciously cutting women out. Yeah. It just wasn't, and it wasn't like there was any shortage of women filmmakers to be interviewed for this thing. And so I think I, I say all this because I think there is this aspect of privilege, particularly in the creative world that like we all have some kind of it. And I think when we can have empathy, I think it makes us better artists, frankly. And I, and I think yeah. we can all learn from that. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing too. I mean, I was thinking about it as well when I was looking back at, you know, that world, that subculture that we were a part of. I mean, how many black filmmakers were there? Oh, hardly I, any. Honestly, like I can count you and Natalie Neal. Natalie Neal. That's and, the only um, one I can <laughs> Like that was pretty much it. Um, and that's the thing. And you know, I think about it now and I just like cringe in the fact of like, God, like 
how could I have not realized like that challenge and like how, you know, white centric everything was and always yeah. was. So, you know, I think there's just so much that we're aware of now. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that the only path forward in my very limited white female heterosexual cis view <laughs> is um is empathy is the way and that's the only thing that i am a little nervous about with i would say like gen z um just from some of my friends that do have kids that are um graduating high school and all mm-hmm. of that they're looking at us like why the hell didn't you figure this out guys like what okay. took you so long right mm-hmm. of course of course but the inability to be empathetic to uh the journey, like the need to get everything right the first time mm-hmm. is there. And the, the problem is, is that we learn, we excel when we learn from our mistakes. We all know that like failure is a propellant for doing better. Um, and so that's my only concern is, is that, you know, when we we're, we're grateful that we didn't grow up in a, you know, where we were filmed every single minute of the day and made our mistakes and all of those things. I mean, the things that I probably said, um, the generalizations that I probably said, I'm so glad that that wasn't documented because I'm a very different person today and you are too. Yeah. And I think that that's the challenge. That's the biggest challenge is this need for our younger, our kids um, to be perfect and to mm-hmm. get it every single time. And the reality is there's not because we have a really broken history and we have a history that needs excavating and needs to be able to be talked out and go, well, why, why was it this way? And mm-hmm. how can I help facilitate something better now? Like, how can I help um, not make those same mistakes, not, not continue that generational trauma? It's, mm-hmm. it's very real. And it's just something that like, it kind of, it, it very much is hard, you know, especially being in my forties, like coming over that time, your body doesn't work the same. You're like, wait a second. Things are so funky now, but at the same time, I'm like, but I want the world to be such a better place. And I, you've got to just strive to, to hope that empathy will be a way that we can, instead of being so critical of everybody. Um, now, we definitely need to be critical of people. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be critical and that you shouldn't hold people accountable, but we do need to have empathy for when people make mistakes and they recognize it authentically to be able to say, okay, let's see you do better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I always like to end with the speed round. Mm. There aren't a lot of questions. It's funny. Sometimes my speed rounds end up going long because we get caught on. So they're not speed rounds? Because <laughs> we get caught on the answer that person gives and, and it leads me down a rabbit hole. Oh, no. I'm not, I'm not a short. I'm not a, I'm a long-winded person, so I apologize right. in advance. Yeah. Um, so here are your speed round questions. A guilty pleasure TV show or movie? Well, Schitt's Creek is my guilty pleasure. I, I love watching Schitt's Creek. It's funny. Whenever a person gives an answer that I don't think counts as a guilty pleasure, <laughs> and I kind of feel like it's not fair because... It's an like amazing it's, show. It's, it's in a subject again. Yeah, it's like it's so critically acclaimed. So like for me, a guilty pleasure right. is something that maybe the majority crap. of the world thinks is crap, but you just for whatever reason love. Or there's some aspect of it that maybe embarrassing for you like if you were really into high school musical the musical that might be mm-hmm. a guilty pleasure even though that's a really popular show like for me my guilty pleasure which i joke about is pitch perfect like i love that movie <laughs> um i would say that my guilty pleasure is girls just want to have fun oh the movie the oh movie. that's a yes. good one Sarah Justice so Parker and Helen Hunt. yes <laughs> yeah. so bad. reversible like catholic it? clothes that you can change on the bus who doesn't want that what is it that you like about that? Oh my God, it's a dance competition. That's right. It is. It's a dance competition <laughs> and you find your true love. Right. No, I loved it. I just loved it. I love that. That's actually like one of the movies that made me want to go to film school. Is it really? Yes. And all of my film friends were like, you're insane. Like that's not, that's not the world that we're living in. Okay. I remember one interview with you from years ago. And you told me the thing that inspired you to go learn filmmaking was the video Take On You or Take On Me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh Aha's Take On Me. I wanted to be a music video director. That's all I want. That's the whole reason. Every time I hear that song, I think of you now. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah. I love that song. It's a, it's the best. And um, it was a great music video. Uh, yeah. for it's time. It was excellent. Flashdance, Footloose, uh-huh. Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Those are like my core things because growing up, I wanted to be a solid gold dancer. That was my... Did you my... ever take dance classes? Did you ever do any kind of dancing? I was a competitive figure skater, but I never took dance classes. And that's oh. my big regret. I wish my mom put me in dance. But Solid Gold was like such an amazing show. Right. And I wanted to be a Solid Gold dancer. The only... Okay, so a guilty pleasure uh-huh. used to be The Voice. I used to love watching The Voice. Oh, okay. I thought The Voice was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about um, the last thing that you saw that surprised you? Like something the last you made- thing that I, that I saw that surprised me mm-hmm. was I was driving um, down the street and there mm-hmm. was a giant uh, hawk flying in front of my car and I couldn't see its beak because there was a massive rat in its mouth fighting with it curled up and they were at war with each other while the hawk was trying to take off. And I could just see this nasty tail and it was absolutely disgusting. And I wanted to throw up. And then a week later, as I was getting on the freeway, I saw the same thing yet again. That's because crazy. I moved out of the Bay Area and I live in the hills now. So that's what I see on the regular. Okay, so I need to rephrase the question. I meant... <laughs> I be- <laughs> what? You want to hear from a fucking rat? No, no, no. The last like film or TV show you saw. Oh, we're talking about film still? Yeah, yeah, we're still. This is a film. Believe it or not, this is a filmmaking podcast. Okay, okay, sorry. I was just talking about life. Yeah, no, that that is a surprise. But like something you saw on TV or a movie you saw that surprised. Maybe you thought it was really good and it sucked. Oh, thought it was sucking and turned out to be really good. This may destroy you. Oh, I've heard so much about that. Incredible. Incredible. Just really like just I sat with that after each episode. And you're talking about the HBO series this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh that's a heavy one. It's a really heavy one. Yeah. And then the last one is uh if you could collaborate on a film with anyone, who would it be and why? Sophie Muller. Who's that? Sophie Muller is uh she's an acclaimed music video director, and she's also one of the reasons that I wanted to go to film school. So um she this is directed Bjork, uh, Sade. Oh, cool. Uh, she does most of, you know, Gwen Stefani, no doubt, videos. Right. Um, and she's a commercial director as well. But she just has a really beautiful style, um, her art direction, just her her visual style. And then also, like, as an editor, I, I just love watching her work because I can kind of see some of the ways in which she chooses to tell stories. And mm-hmm. so I just love, and she's also an enigma. So it's really hard to get a photo of her. And I just find that even more exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just would love the opportunity to, I actually was going to try to see if I could do an internship with her after I did bliss. Wow. Uh, but you know, then I had kids. So yeah. that went out the window. Uh, the last question I have would be in your position as a creative director, what would be like your own piece of advice for artists out there who are applying to someone of your ilk for any kind of job, whether it's a design or a filmmaking job? Uh, a number of people listening are the kind of people who might apply to someone like you. What piece of advice would you give? Especially since there's so much competition out there, right? There is so much competition. Like how do you stand above the rest? I think some of the ways is that, first of all, like I said before, um, Cultivate and craft your point of view as mm-hmm. a creative so that it comes through in your work, uh, whether that's stylistically so that you can show like, hey, look, this is the realm that I love to work in and I want to only stay within that realm. That's totally fine. Or right. I like to do a variety of things. Um, but then also just always try to learn like the newest uh, types of programs and um, techniques. Mm-hmm. Never stop learning on that and, and mm-hmm. just trying and testing yourself. And trying to figure out like new new forms and new ways, and, and be passionate. Be passionate about what you do. Yeah. Like you have to care about the work. If you can be really great technically, but if you don't really care about the work, that shows through. I mean, I think we all know that. Yeah. But nobody wants to hire somebody that doesn't care about the work. And be okay to f- be comfortable failing at it, and learning from that, and taking that, and continuing on. I think that's so important. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful, Kristen. We can't wait uh, another 14 years to do this. I have a lot of <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
It's been so great talking to you, Ron. Yeah, you too. Thanks again for taking this time. This has been awesome catching up with you and hearing your insight and stuff. And we have to do it again. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Huge thanks to Kristen for taking the time to speak with me on the little show. There'll be links to her uh, website and uh, social media on the show notes for this episode, as well as a blog post uh, for this episode at ProVideoCoalition.com. Crossing the 180 is a production of Blade Runner Media and part of Pro Video Coalition's Art of the Frame podcast series. This episode was produced, written, edited, and hosted by yours truly, Ron Dawson. You can follow me on Twitter at Blade Ronner. That's Ronner with a no. And you can follow me on Instagram at Blurred Ronner. You can follow Pro Video Coalition on Twitter at Simply Pro Video. That's it for now. Until next time, remember if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. See you in two weeks. <laughs>